millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This week's episode is brought to you by The Story is a State of Mind School. Early registration is now open for The Story Intensive, an amazing course happening this fall, all about craft and brilliant writing, offered by the one and only Sarah Selecki, who you all know as a repeat guest on the show. Find out how you can sign up for the course and request me as your TA at carolinedonahue.com story. There will also be some group coaching calls for those who sign up through me and other fun stuff going on over there. So again, the link to check that out is carolinedonahue.com story. Okay, now on with the show. Welcome to episode 55. My guest today is Autumn Boyd, an experienced lawyer who helps high-achieving and ambitious entrepreneurs reach their big goals faster and smarter. Her law office is the go-to firm for creative and online business entrepreneurs. She loves helping businesses as their general counsel and meeting regularly to give guidance and focus decision-making proactively as a key advisor for the executive team. She has special expertise in protecting brands by registering trademarks and copyrights and advising clients on intellectual property matters. She works with businesses to get started on the right foot, create airtight contracts, and understand their legal issues in plain English. And prior to opening her own firm in 2015, for six and a half years, she worked with Harmon and Seidman LLC, a copyright litigation law firm. So why are we having a lawyer on the Secret Library podcast? Well, the reason for that is that, as you may have noticed listening over time, that Frequently, people talk about dealing with the contract and how important the contract is for writers. So I wanted to have Autumn on, who is extremely knowledgeable and has worked with a number of authors to talk about contracts and what you need to know as a writer, just so you feel informed and comfortable. Because for many creative people, there's nothing more scary than a contract. So I hope that after listening to today's episode, which I had a lot of fun asking questions of Autumn, you feel better prepared when eventually your manuscript is ready to make its way out into the world. All right, here we go with Autumn Boyd. Hey, Autumn, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. I'm, I didn't say this before we started, but I'm a huge reader and book lover. So this is like a dream. Awesome. Now, I, I, I also, I mean, no one can see this, but you have the most beautifully organized office with labels and everything in the background. <laughs> like, I already feel like we're in such good hands. Super type A. Oh, I love it. So I want to talk about something that maybe a lot of writers may not realize they need to think about, but at some point in your life as a writer, you may face a contract and other aspects that need to be translated by 
someone like Autumn who is a lawyer. So let's talk about what kind of the, granted all my friends are lawyers for some reason, but <laughs> when, I, when I'm when i presented with the language, I even get a little tongue-tied. So I can only imagine what people who don't hang out with lawyers all the time feel. But maybe the anatomy of a contract, is that the way that you would discuss it? Sure, yeah. So I'm a lawyer who I work with a lot of authors. This is some of my favorite work to do. Um, and different lawyers do different things. So um, this is definitely an area where I think most lawyers can read a contract or write a contract. But like you said, the anatomy of a book publishing contract, which is what I'm going to kind of talk about today, because I assume that's going to be the most common kind. It is really industry specific. And so to have somebody who maybe does criminal law or family law taking a look at this contract, like they'll be able to kind of tell you what it means, but they won't really be able to help you with, is this industry standard or are they grabbing rights they really shouldn't be or... Um, you know, is there any kind of other craziness going on? And so this is an area where working with either an agent and often an agent will have a lawyer on their team that they'll have review the contract before you even get it. Or if you're not working with an agent, I would definitely recommend working with a lawyer to help you understand, you know, some of the things are not negotiable, but um, just understanding what you're agreeing to so that you know from the beginning what you're getting yourself into, I think is really important. Yeah, a point that you made that I want to reiterate is that just because you happen to know a lawyer doesn't mean that you that their specialty is one that's going to apply to your situation. I think a lot of people maybe understand the metaphor under the doctor analogy a little bit more. Like if you know somebody who's a podiatrist, you're not going to go to them with your heart issue. Or if you know a pediatrician, you're probably not going to go there to talk about, I don't know, something else that's not to do with children. So I think lawyers right. are the same way. And you need to know that you're talking to somebody who specializes in the area that you want to be working on. Hence, Autumn yeah, being exactly. on here, not my family law friends. <laughs> Yeah. So just going into, I mean, every publisher will have its own form contract. And so they're all a little different. And I've seen some are five pages, some are 40 pages. So it really varies depending on the publisher and how um, intricate their legal department has set up their contract. But your general anatomy of a contract, you're going to start with, and I pulled one up just to kind of guide me, one that I worked on recently you know, you're going to either have a title for your book or you're going to have at least an idea. You know, usually you will have pitched an idea um, with a proposal that's pretty specific about what you're going to be writing about. But you may have three other books in your stable that you've been thinking about. So it's really a good idea to make sure the publisher knows what they're getting and you know what you're delivering. So that's one of the first things is just really defining what is the book that you're writing. And then the next thing that you're going to look at is what are the rights that the publisher is going to have? And this I have seen really very widely. Um, of course, they are going to want the rights to print the book in paper, but now it's pretty standard to have electronic rights to do eBooks or other digital delivery forms. But a question here is whether they'll have the right to do other kinds of things with the book. So will they have TV rights or movie rights if the book is a huge hit and somebody wants to make a movie out of it? Um, that is sometimes negotiable, sometimes not. Um, I have, I work with a lot of online entrepreneurs, so a lot of them may, um, have an e-course that they've already done and they want to write a book based on that, or maybe they've got a podcast that's become successful. So there can be other kinds of products that could either have come before or after the book. So I'm with those kinds of clients, I'm really careful to make sure that if they already have in their brains an idea for something they want to do related to the book, that they can do it. Um, because the publisher is probably going to want to get all the rights they can. 
but oftentimes they're not really going to use that. I mean, how many books do have been made into an app? Like not that many. Um, that may be something that becomes more popular in the near future. Who's to say, but you know, if you've already got an idea for an app, you don't want to give that to the publisher unless they're paying you for it. Exactly. And I'll pause there. Any questions on any of those? Yeah, I think I love that I can ask you all these questions. One that people, listeners who got to listen to Scott Carney's episode will remember that he was very specific about not giving his publisher uh, for his recent book, the audiobook rights, so that he could record it himself and yeah. sell that directly to Audible. So, can you say a little bit about kind of working that into it and how open it seems that publishers are to those kinds of clauses? Is clause even the yeah, right word? I think, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, sure. A clause or a term are kind of interchangeable to talk about pieces of a contract. It really depends on the author's bargaining power. So I did a deal recently with um, a client who shall remain nameless, but they have a fairly well-known podcast and they really wanted to do the audio to their book and they were not able to negotiate that right. So they were able to, I think, get input into who's going to do the audio, but you know, that's not a guarantee that they'll be able to choose the person. They can just make suggestions so, but this is their first book. And so maybe if they had more of a track record, yeah, you know, they would have a little bit more bargaining power. So that's definitely something, you know, a Tina Fey <laughs> or an right. Amy Poehler, of course, would have the bargaining power to say, yeah, I'm going to do the audio book and maybe I want to sell it separate from the print book. Yeah. So this is even negotiating similar to talking about people who've wanted to have approval rights for their cover, but having approval exactly. rights for who the voice is that's going to do your audio book. Right. Or having approval over the design or the layout. Um, if it's something more graphic, like a cookbook or a you know a lifestyle book, those are all just negotiable. Um, and you may or may not be able to get them. Well, do you find that there is a difference, not only with the person's bargaining power, but also with the specific press or the size of the press in terms of ability to negotiate that way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I did a deal not long ago with a client who's in the health and wellness space and, you know, a typical book deal with a, a tr- traditional publisher, you're going to have an advance um, and then a royalty. So you'll be paid in advance, probably in installments um, based on your delivery of certain pieces of the project. And then um, you'll have to earn back that advance from sales before you actually start earning a percentage of those sales as a royalty. That's a, a pretty standard setup. But th- in this space, she was just paid a flat fee for writing the book. There was no royalty. There was no advance. It was just, here's the money that we're going to pay you. So she really didn't have, you know, much of a sales incentive or marketing incentive. It was just, it was very transactional, but they also, it was pretty much a take it or leave it deal. Like they really weren't willing to negotiate much of anything. You know, it was a smaller press and a, a much smaller print run than I think maybe some of the bigger publishers would do. But yeah, it definitely is different depending on the publisher. So that's almost like a work for hire. Right. Yeah. I think she did own the copyright. So it was a little different, but yeah, she pretty much wasn't making any more, any more money than that initial payment. Maybe when it went out of print, she would have some reversion rights. So then she could sell it on her own. So that was the only benefit, but you know, and and yeah, there can be other benefits. I mean, she, I think wanted it as a feather in her cap to establish her expertise. And yeah, there is some value in that. 
But, you know, some of the terms in the contract, honestly, were pretty terrible. And so we had a lot of discussions about, you know, is they're not really paying you very much. Like, is this worth? Because <laughs> it's always kind of a give and a take. Yeah, absolutely. Is it worth giving up this right? Yeah, I think that's something to consider as you're looking at the contract, maybe, is if you are, say, producing a nonfiction book that's going to support and extend the brand of your business versus if you're a fiction writer and the book is really your main thing. It's not a marketing tool. It is the thing. It is your whole thing. <laughs> right, right. So how do you see that being different in the contract between, say, fiction and nonfiction? Is there a huge difference or do they work pretty much the same way? Um, I mean, there are some terms that are going to be different. I think with a nonfiction book, you're more likely to have um, more content. Well, it's just a little different. I think more of a lifestyle or a cookbook type scenario. Or I have another client that did um, a book that was really photo heavy. And so a big part of her, and it wasn't photos she was taking, it was like archival photos. So a big part of her project was finding photos and getting the rights to use those photos. Um, so in a deal like that, there are going to be some different terms about, you know, guaranteeing that you do have the rights to use those photos and then you are indemnifying the publisher, which means you're basically saying if they get sued, you are on the hook for their attorney's fees and any kind of judgment or settlement that they have to pay. If one of those photos, you didn't really have the rights to use. So that can just add another layer in a nonfiction book. Um, now in a fiction book. I guess the other thing is you're not going to have fact checking with a with a fiction book. <laughs> so there are there are some different considerations in those deals. The the way that they're set up is going to be very similar, but there are a little bit different elements. So when you said before that a lot of the terms in that one contract were really terrible, like what are some things that <laughs> what are some things that people should be on the lookout for of like okay, you're going to get, you're going to have like deer in the headlights, like, oh my God, I'm so excited. They want to take my book, but like, don't right. give these things up. What would some examples of that situation be? I mean, an agent would probably be better to speak about some of these that are more deal points that might be negotiable, but just some things to think about what we touched on earlier about what rights you're giving away. When I was talking about this health and wellness client, she um, wanted to do an e-course on the same topic and they wanted to get all, basically all the rights ever to this whole topic. So she would not have been able to do anything on that topic as an e-course. And that's really where she was making her money. So that's something just to keep an eye on if you do have plans for the same topic. I'm always really worried about that. The other thing to think about is if they reject the work, if they don't like it, you know, do you get to keep the advance? Do you have to refund the advance? Because um, often that advance is spent. <laughs> by the time, or at least the first installment of it. Some other things to think about, um, if you are, and this is again, more with a nonfiction, like a lifestyle or a cookbook, um, if you are having to fund paying for a photographer out of your advance and then they reject it, you know, that's, that's real money out of your pocket. So just to be, to be careful and to be aware of, of how that all works. Or like if you have to hire a designer to help you with some of those pieces of putting that together. So it sounds like there's a lot that can happen. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people, myself included, kind of think like, oh, I've got this book deal. This book is coming out. But it seems like there are kind of more situations than you think of where they buy the, you know, they want to buy the book based on the proposal. But when they get the manuscript, they may not want to go through with printing it. Correct. And I don't, I mean, I, I would think you would know that early 
earlier on, I think it's rare that they totally reject it. Um, but what I have seen is they, you know, have totally restructured the book or, um, you know, between your proposal and you actually writing it, they say, yeah, I know we bought this proposal, but we really want this other thing. And then you have to decide, you know, do you want to go forward with that other thing or not? Yeah. And seeing what the negotiating rights were, because we had people remember episode one, Barry Tesler talking about her book and how she delivered the manuscript. And then the publisher initially completely restructured it. She wrote a, a personal <laughs> finance book that to her was special because it was so different because of her approach. And she, like your clients, teaches a course. But then to be you know, given back the book. So it looks like any other personal finance book in this space was just like, um, and they were ultimately right. able to work it out. But yeah, having terms maybe in the contract as to how you would manage a situation like that sounds like it could be important. Yeah. And that's something that's hard to get into the contract. Some of that will just honestly depend on the relationship with you and your agent and the editor at the publishing house. But yeah, if you could get that in the contract, that would be amazing. Yeah, like you have final <laughs> usually, say on structuring or ordering or, or anything right. like that. Yeah, usually with these deals, the publisher is going to be the one who puts forward the contract, you know, so they'll have their standard form and then try, you try and negotiate as best you can. Um, and then you have to decide, you know, do you want to do a book deal with that publisher or do you want no book deal or do you want to take it somewhere else? And oftentimes the contract is not like your in the middle of writing the book as you're still kind of trying to solidify the contract. So it can be really hairy. <laughs> yeah. And it's like completely different sides of your brain having to be involved. Right. So yet oh, another yes, reason absolutely. to have a lawyer on your side at that moment. Yeah. And then the other, the only other thing that I would say to really watch out for is it is standard for the author to own the copyright. And I would not sign a deal where the publisher owns the copyright or somebody else owns the copyright. Because if that book goes out of print, it should revert to the author. You know, you, the publisher shouldn't own it forever and ever if they're not going to do anything with it. That's a really good point. Yeah, because then you could shop it out to another publisher. And as we've seen, there are many, many books where you think it's a new book in the bookstore. And then you look at the original pub date and... <laughs> It's a repackaged book, which is great for the author because let's say you've written 10 books and it's your 10th book that's a huge hit and your first five are out of print. Well, you could redesign right. them and shop them again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And often, you know, publishers go out of business. I mean, things happen. Um, and maybe you know, the first iteration of your book didn't get the publicity it, it could have or wasn't pushed out to as many stores as you may have liked. So there can be life in a book after <laughs> after the first time. So how common is it? I'm thinking of somebody maybe who's in a transitional place where they've maybe self-published several books, they've done really well, and then a publisher is wanting to take them on. How does that tend to work in terms of their, as you said, like stable of works that are already out there? What tends to be the biggest advantage for an author maybe who has some books sitting around, but they aren't getting as much attention as they could? Do you see deals where they yeah, I mean throw it all in? You certainly can. And that's why it's really important to have very clear in the contract what they're buying. So if you do have prior works that they're interested in republishing under their imprint to make that really clear. So I've seen it go both ways. I've seen where they do, you know, buy the prior books or it may be worth it to you um, to keep those self-published. And because, you know, as well as I do, that the, the monetary split is much more favorable on a self-published book if you're willing to put in all the work that it takes to 
put together and produce and market and publicize your self-published book. So I, I've seen it go both ways, honestly. Um, and again, it's just something else to to bargain with and to to think about what are the benefits of having the publisher take on those books versus you keeping them under that self-published. And there are authors who have done bo- books both ways. So my next question is, it's obvious, you know, there's a lot of complexity to this topic, just even from starting to talk about it. How do you work with authors? Like, what does that look like? If somebody's, say, going to bring an author into the relationship, I mean, sorry, bring a lawyer into their relationship in order to help with this kind of thing, what what can they expect out of that relationship? What should they be looking for in a lawyer? And how do you structure those relationships? Sure. So I work with clients a couple of different ways. Some of my clients are working with an agent. And in that case, the agent is really kind of the one holding the ball. So they're doing the negotiating with the publisher. Um, and often they have that relationship. So it makes sense for them to do that. And then I kind of come in just as another set of legal eyes, honestly, um, just looking over the contract. But the major points have already really been set in stone at that point if they've got an agent on their team. So my role is you know, less in a deal like that. I'm more, I work with clients where I've, I've kind of got my eye on the big picture. So maybe we've talked about things that they want to do in a couple of years. And so I'm just trying to read the contract and make sure that they're able to do the things they want to do, that they're not giving away anything that they shouldn't be. With a different kind of client that maybe didn't have an agent is working with either a smaller publisher or um, just on their own. I take a more active role in the negotiation um, really from the beginning and then you know putting together the contract and making sure the contract accurately reflects what we've negotiated and then also that you know there's no no craziness going on no no grabbing of things that they shouldn't be so yeah my involvement kind of varies depending on on the relationship so let's even slow this down because i can already feel creative brains going like yeah i don't even know what this looks like (laughs) so let's say they're like i know i need somebody how do they start the process? Do they call you and then have a conversation? And then are they maybe, I mean, I think all of us have this kind of diluted conception of like, you know, Wall Street in the 80s, like you've got to pay <laughs> thousands of dollars, you know, per hour, the whole thing, like this is going to bankrupt me, I'm gonna have to pay my whole advance to my lawyer. So, you know, how do they start this relationship? And what are the practical points of the relationship look like? Sure. Yeah. I do usually start um, with an email or a phone call and I work with clients all over the United States. So a lot of it is virtual, just like we're talking now over Skype, uh, which I prefer. And then you can actually see a face. And then I ask them to give me all their money. No, <laughs> I, I generally, um, I, I work mostly either on a retainer with clients that have ongoing, you know, they've got a lot of projects. I work with them on an ongoing basis or I do flat rate work. So I don't do a lot of hourly work, um, which I think is really uh, makes people nervous because they have no idea what something is really going to cost. Like how much does it cost to negotiate a book deal? I don't know. It could be, you know, a hundred thousand dollars. It could be $500. So I try and, you know, quote a flat fee on the front. So everybody knows what it's actually going to cost. And then, I don't nickel and dime for phone calls and emails. You know, it's it's an ongoing back and forth. Um, I send drafts back and forth in Word, you know, with markup, with changes tracked, just like you would, you know, that's a very lawyer thing to do. But um, it's easy. That way it's easy for everybody to see what's been changed. Yeah. And it's just emails and phone calls from that point. 
And, you know, I pride myself on being really approachable and trying to break things down into plain English. So, um, you know, it, it can be a scary and overwhelming process. And I try to you know take a lot of that worry away and say, you know, now I'm the one doing the worrying about the legal side. So you don't have to worry anymore. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's kind of fun at that point. And we talk about pros and cons and the, you know, the decision-making is always with the author because it's their baby. And I totally get that. So my job is really just to explain the pros and cons of different options and help them make those decisions. And then what is the timeline generally for this kind of process? Like when somebody is presented with a contract or they say, okay, I've written this book, I've sent in the proposal or I've sent in the manuscript. I mean, it's different for fiction and nonfiction because you're, you know, the book's already written versus you're going to write it. But in general, when you see a contract versus when it's finalized, like is that like also the 500 to a million dollar range in terms of time? Or is there sort of a, <laughs> a general timeline that seems reasonable for that to happen? I mean, I think to get something published with a traditional publisher is probably going to be 18 months to two years from maybe proposal to actually seeing it in the bookstore, just because of the you know, there's a negotiation on the front end and then there's all the steps of getting it edited and then copy edited. And then if it's nonfiction fact-checked and all the design and layout, there's just many, many steps. And then there's publicity and, um, you know, if it's a holiday book, you want to get it into bookstores a couple months before, you know? So, um, yeah, it is not a fast process. It's probably faster with fiction. I honestly, most of my clients have been nonfiction, so I don't have as much experience in the fiction world, but that might be a little quicker since it is already written at the beginning. So what's the, the timeline, that portion of that 18 months to two years, what portion of it are you negotiating the contract? Like about how long does that process go? It can really vary. You know, it can be as fast as a couple weeks. Um, but sometimes, you know, I had one recently where they had a deal like in principle, but it took six months to get a contract from even to start the negotiations. Wow. (laughs) And that's because the publisher was going through some transitions and, you know, they had staffing changes, you know, just things can happen, but they were writing the book during that whole time. This was a nonfiction project. Um, so, you know, it was moving forward and they were talking to their editor and, you know, things were happening. So it wasn't like, I think you'll often see that it's kind of on parallel tracks. Like the book is moving forward, even though the contract is not yet signed. (laughs) But usually you don't get your first payment until the contract is signed. So (laughs) there can be, uh, that can make you a little anxious while you're waiting. You know, I'm doing all this work, but I haven't been paid. Yeah, exactly. That seems sort of terrifying. I know, I know, right? But I mean, worst case scenario in that, if, if things fell apart and you couldn't get that contract, you know, then you've got a book and you could theoretically shop it to somebody else at that point. Have you ever had experiences where you just felt like a deal was a little fishy where you're like, there's my, my lawyer spidey sense is going off and there's just (laughs) something a little fishy about this. I'm just wondering if you have any examples of that. Um, no, I haven't had that. What do you mean? Like you felt like, um, they were not on the up and up or Or just like there was some clause that they were pushing for and you were just like, "Mm, that's just not that doesn't feel right. Or I'm getting this sense that like this contract isn't going to go through. Like, do people ever kind of, I'm trying to think, this is probably just like my worst fear, personal anxiety (laughs) coming out and everyone listening is going to be like, what is wrong with you? But, um, like if there's a sense of people asking for unreasonable things, like to make a situation impossible. Oh, no, 
I haven't had that personally. Um, I have, I've heard about that more in the music industry, honestly, uh, where, you know, you negotiate this amazing deal for the artist and then it turns out to be so good that the, <laughs> the record company doesn't end up putting out the album because it was a little bit too one-sided. I know worst case scenario, horrible. right? Yeah. No, I haven't had that. And I'm like looking for some wood to knock on. <laughs> to make sure. Yeah. Um, what I have seen, in, and this has been in other contexts, is just something I never would have thought of comes up. Mm. And then I go back and like look at my emails or I think about the phone conversations and I'm like, oh, they were being really careful around that point, but I wasn't thinking about it. And so I didn't ask. And, you know, that stuff, you can only do so much. You know, you can only think of the things you can think of. But that is another example of why it really can pay off to to work with somebody who does this kind of thing all the time because they know what to look for. And so there'll be fewer of those, hopefully fewer of those unexpected things. Can you give an example of something like that? The app one you mentioned earlier is definitely one I wouldn't have yeah, thought like of. Yeah, like the app, like that, or, um, you know, I... I think right now podcasts are really hot as a marketing tool. And so, yeah, if, if, um, you know, you're trying to negotiate audio rights and that just seems a little fishy and then it turns out that the publisher wants to launch this huge podcast and they're not going to pay you anything for it, but they're expecting you to do all this work or, you know, things like that where it comes out later. Or they want to own your show. Right. They want to own it and they're going to pay you like five cents. Oh my God. Yeah. That would be awful. (laughs) But they're going to. Yeah. Yeah. So things like that. But yeah, I mean, I think when you talk about your spidey sense, like that's important to to listen to because if you've got alarm bells going off, you know, I'm, I'm not very woo woo, but I do think your intuition is worth trusting for sure. Or at least if there's something that feels important to you to figure out if there's a way to include it in a contract. Right. Well, like you're talking about the audio rights, like if you, if that's something that's really important to you, then maybe that's a hill you want to die on. If it's, and if it's not, then it's not. And some of this is a pick your battles. You you know, you can't have everything. So, but if there's one thing you really, really care about, like maybe it's the cover design or maybe it's the photographer or, you know, maybe it's the editor even. Um, if it, you know, if it's a fiction book, I know that can be a really close relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So that, those can be important things. Yeah. So at what stage, I mean, you hear about these, you know, and I think this is probably when people are further along in terms of having published a number of books, but you see these people signing like a three book deal with a publisher where they have several books, you know, maybe that they're planning to write. And what does that kind of look like? And what happens? Well, we could start with what it looks like. And then I'm also curious about like, well, what happens if two years later, you're like, I'm going to throw up if I have to write this book, because I'm a different person (laughs) now. And I don't want to write about I don't know, this kind of cooking anymore. I'm over it. It's not working for me. Right. So maybe, yeah. So usually, usually when they talk about that, it's really an option for the, uh, like the first book, it's a real deal. And then it's an option for the next two books. And that is definitely an area where contract drafting is important because like you said, uh, maybe you don't want, like, let's say you do a Greek cookbook or something is your first cookbook. And then the way the option is written they only have an option for the next two books that are Greek cookbooks. So if you wanted to write something about fitness or something or a fiction book or something just totally different, or something about parenting, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily be obligated, either obligated to do it or obligated to give them, you know, the, the right of first refusal. And usually options are a right of first refusal. It's not a requirement. And usually it's not even a requirement that you have to have to write the next book. It's just if you do. I mean, and usually if you're an author, you want to write another book. 
so it's not a requirement that you do it, but it's, um, it's usually if you do, and they usually will want to go ahead and have you do it pretty quickly. So you might have a proposal, you might have a due date even before the first one is published because um, it, it is such a long lead time right. to, that they want to go ahead and see what you're working on next or what you're thinking about and go ahead and get that in process. And then they have the right to, if it's an option, they have the right to pass on it. Um, and then if they do, then you can shop it around to other publishers or, you know, put it in a drawer and not do anything with it. Yeah, you might be you like, to move even it. more Greek cooking. My third Greek cookbook <laughs> is is just not going to, like, even more heroes. I just can't face it. <laughs> exactly. No more yogurt sauce. Exactly. Right, right. Or um, I sometimes, like, I had some clients recently, and it's a partnership. It's a duo. And um, their option is only for the next book they write together. So either of them could write a book separately, and it wouldn't be subject to this option. Interesting. And that can that can be a pro or a con. I mean, let's say the first book is a huge hit. And so maybe you want to be able to shop it around to other publishers who might give you a better deal. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, if you've created that relationship with the publisher and with an editor, um, you know, I think it's fair to give them the first look and, um, you know, they've invested in you and in your work. Absolutely. So it kind of goes both ways. Yeah. So we had another author on recently, Ezie Spencer, and she's Australian. And so her book was initially published through an Australian publisher, and then she came over to the U.S., and she opted only to publish in Australia with that publishing house, and then came over here and ended up negotiating a separate book deal in the U.S. So do you see a lot of clauses around publishers wanting to have international rights, or do people generally get to keep those and then think about, do I want to sell this in other countries or markets? Yeah, it just, again, it depends on the contract. I think most U.S. publishers are going to want those rights, and those are called subsidiary rights, because usually the U.S. publisher isn't actually printing the book in, say, Spain um, or Australia is a little different market because it's the same language. But if you think of another language market or Chinese, they are basically subcontracting with a publisher in those countries to produce, to print, to translate, to do all the work of publishing that book in the other country. And so the royalty split is different. I mean, it's just a totally different scenario. So the money works a little differently. But um, yeah, I found U.S. publishers generally will want those rights. Of course, like anything else, you can negotiate around it if you let's say, have a relationship with someone in Spain, a publisher in Spain, and maybe you want to do that as a separate deal. Yeah. Do you find that, I mean, then, of course, it brings up all these questions about like, well, is it more of a pain in the ass to <laughs> like deal with another publisher and go through this whole negotiating process? And maybe it's maybe financially slightly less favorable to do it as a subsidiary through your existing publisher, but the irritation factor is so much lower. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You, you, it would have to be a radically different dollar amount for me, at least to want to have to individually deal with a Spanish publisher and a German publisher and a Chinese publisher. I mean, just the logistics of that would be a total nightmare, I think. Yeah. So there, there is, you know, even though you're going to make less on those, um, there's a reason it's because the publisher does it all the time and they're used to, you know, dealing with those subsidiary companies. Yeah. And this, I think, to clarify, probably, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I would think this is more common with, say, large publishers like Big Five or others correct. who have relationships versus if you go with an independent small press, they're not necessarily going to have any resources to publish overseas. Right. And they're probably going to be much more likely to have like a North American rights rather than, you know, all world. Got it. 
So do people ever have, this was something that came up when um, V.E. Schwab was on. This is so fun. I get to like go through the catalog and be like, now let's talk about the law (laughs) side. It's like the law commentary. She was saying that in some ways she was extremely grateful that she got a small advance on her first book because then she was able to earn it out. And she was saying in no other industry that she can think of, although I think music and other creative fields are like that, do they put so much pressure on debuts? And then like, oh, she's like, you'd never have a debut surgeon operating, you know, and think this is a great (laughs) idea. But with authors, we do that, give them huge advances, and then they freak out. And if they don't earn out, then they're sort of crippled forever. So would you ever think of an example? I mean, having heard that, it made me think, well, maybe I'd be like, this advance seems a bit large to me. Um, Granted, I don't think they're like throwing around $100,000 advances or even half that, like, willy-nilly. Please pay me less money. (laughs) Yeah, just pay me a little less so that I can earn it out and then I can continue to do better. But do people ever get freaked out by their advance amount? Probably in both directions. Of course. course. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Especially if they haven't written the book. I think it can be a lot to be weighing over your head. You know, am I really going to finish this book? Because if, I mean, if you don't even turn in the book, then yes, you have to give it, give back the advance. I mean, it's not just money in your pocket, but I think it's also really hard not to spend it. And so knowing that, you know, oh my gosh, if I don't do this, um, or if they don't like it, I could potentially have to pay that back. That's, that can be terrifying, of course. Yeah. And then the practicality of like part of the purpose of the advance, I would think as a writer is to like pay for your life as you're writing it so that you have time to write it. It's like, well, I'm working two jobs right now. And then I got to squeeze this in so that this advance can sit in my savings until I'm done and make sure they like it. I mean, that's a a tricky balancing act. Yeah, it can be very tricky, of course. Is there anything in the category of things that maybe people think they don't know. I know when we were first talking about this, you had a couple of things you've jotted down. I'm like, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you think is important for people to know? Yeah, I think we've touched on most of them. The big things I wrote down were, you know, how many books are you doing? What's your option? What is the advance? And just being really clear about when you're going to get the advance. Because like I said, it's usually split up into a couple payments. You don't get, you know, let's say you have a $100,000 advance, which would be amazing. <laughs> But you're probably going to get, you know, maybe 25% of it when you turn in your manuscript, maybe 25% um, when it's approved, and then maybe the last 50 when it actually goes to print. So just knowing what those milestones are going to be so you can plan for them. Um, and then those rights, what what rights are you giving up? Um, what does the publisher want to do? And what else can you do if you want to with with the book or even on the same topic of the book? So let's say you are an entrepreneur and you're writing a series of business books and maybe the first one is going to be about marketing, but you've already got plans for another one about finance and strategic planning, or I don't know, but really specifically making sure that the contract is clear about what, 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 what are the rights on the first book? And then what does the option apply to? Um, If the first one is a mega hit and you wanted to maybe take that elsewhere, do you have the right to do that? Yeah, absolutely. And then that the intellectual property of all the content in the book, especially if if you're creating photos in addition to the text, you know, who owns that and can you do other things with them if you wanted to? I think that's a huge point. And I'm wondering if you could give like a little snapshot, because I think this is something that people don't think about is the difference between intellectual property and the book. Because I think you think, oh, here's my book. This is my widget. But there are other things <laughs> like the Venn diagram, which I'm drawing with my hands, which no one can see, is like intellectual property is larger and then the book is inside of that. But 
Right. Can you just say a little bit about those different concepts? I think it's important for people to know. Sure. Yeah. So intellectual property is kind of a broad term that we use to describe things that are intangible, like copyrights, trademarks, patents, trade secrets. Those are your standard intellectual property types. So a book is going to be protected by copyright. So that is one little piece of your intellectual property with a book. But the title may also be a trademark. So think about like chicken soup for the whatever, whatever for the soul, for the teenage soul, for the Christian soul, you know, now there's a hundred thousand different things and now they've done t-shirts and all kinds of other, you know, the calendar. So you could have some trademark rights that you're developing and that will only apply if it's a series of books, you can't have a trademark in a single book. But let's say you already had a brand like, um, is it Sophia Amorosa? I'm going to mess yeah, up her name, but yeah, girl boss. So like she already had a brand and then she wrote a book. So, you know, she already had a trademark that she then, you know, applied in a different area. You're also going to have copyrights in any photos or art in the book um, and maybe even in the design of the book. And if you're writing about like a process or some sort of system, there could be a patent at issue. You know, you could register the patent for some of that. I don't do patent law, but I know just enough to be dangerous. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so it is like this whole universe. Um, and then you could have other other things that you do with the book like make a podcast or make a movie or you know do a study guide all kinds of other ancillary things that you might do with it exactly so i think it's just important to think about and then to consult with a lawyer or your agent or whoever you're working with to determine all of these separate pieces so that you're not kind of giving away the farm so to speak because you think yeah the book is the whole thing yeah. And um, we didn't even talk about merch. Oh, yeah. So that's another thing. Um, like if you wanted to do T-shirts or journals or calendars or coffee mugs, those are things to think about in your publisher agreement as well, because, you know, the publisher probably doesn't want to make coffee mugs. Um, so, <laughs> but maybe they do. <laughs> I don't know, because I, you know, recently Zadie Smith's latest book, Swing Time, they had a marketing thing, which I think was probably something the publisher did, which was when you bought the book, a limited number of people got a tote bag with the cover on it. So that wasn't yeah, something... Yeah, all kinds of cool things now. So I know, but the tote, to think bag, the tote bag thing, I had to clean out so many tote bags as a side note this weekend. And my <laughs> husband and I are like, at what point does it become bad for the environment because you have too many reusable bags? I'm on a tote bag ban by my husband. He's yes. like, not another tote bag, which like kills my soul a little bit because I love a good tote bag. Maybe that's your memoir. <laughs> not another tote not bag. Not another that's tote awesome. bag negotiating for merch <laughs> rights. <laughs> I love it. I can't help it. I compulsively yeah, come up so with it's books. it's just like, you got to think about all the things you would never think about, like the tote bag campaign. And all of, and if you want to sell tote bags and it, you know, I, th I think all of these things are important. And so hopefully what we've instilled in you is not blind panic and fear, but the fact that this is a whole separate arena that is kind of right next to your book and that having somebody who spends their whole life thinking about this is a good thing and not a terrifying thing and can help navigate you through this whole process, just like an agent can help you, um, I think having the law on your side, so to speak, is an important, an important <laughs> thing to do. Yeah. It's just another trusted advisor on your team as you know, you're basically, I mean, when you write a book, you're basically starting a small business and the publisher is investing in your small business. Um, you know, they're footing the bill for a lot of the things that are going to make your small business money. And so, um, having a lawyer who can help you have that high level view can be really important.
definitely. I think you just summed it up right there. <laughs> That's your tweetable. I right know, there. right? I was like, there it is. Um, <laughs> so thank you so, so much for, for coming on and explaining a little bit and just like opening the door a little bit on this whole arena, which I think, you know, the, the writer's job is to write a good book. That's what it boils down yeah. to. But these are things you also need to consider um, in the process of getting the book out in the world. Yeah, absolutely. It was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.